Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. First on the docket, I have something a little different for you this week. It's a topic I've had a fascination with for quite some time because my personal experience with it was so bizarre. Then I heard a discussion about this topic on the podcast You're Wrong About with hosts Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. That conversation was the jumping off point that inspired me to do some deeper research into the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program, aka the D.A.R.E. program. I have met so many people with their own wild recollections about the D.A.R.E. program, and they too look back and wonder to themselves, was this a joke? A lot of things about that program seemed like ignorance or incompetence at the time, but after hearing more about the founder and the origins of the D.A.R.E. program, there may have been a master plan orchestrated around a secret hidden agenda. But before we dive in, be sure to go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. I have one major key player this week named Daryl Gates and a whole lot of daringly entertaining visuals from that era. Speaking of Daryl Gates, let's start with him. Daryl was the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department from 1978 to 1992. That was a pretty uneventful time for the LAPD, right? We'll get there. Before Daryl Gates was chief, he was a captain in the LAPD during the 60s, which were some very wild times in California. He oversaw the investigation of the Manson family murders, heard of them, the Hillside Strangler cases, yep, heard of them too. He was also a special investigator on the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And he was also on the scene during the Watts riots of 1965. Dude, this guy was everywhere. 
The Watts riots inspired one of Daryl Gates's first big brainchild, the Special Weapons Attack Team, later changed to the Special Weapons Attack and Tactics, better known as SWAT. Boy, this guy loves an acronym. He wanted to implement this special detail to help control riots, deal with armed and dangerous suspects, hostage negotiations, and other extreme situations. Oh, and also he started another program, the Public Disorder Intelligence Division, or PDID, and this detail was formed to gather intelligence on local activist groups, deploying undercover officers to infiltrate the organizations. Yeah. Gates got sued for that one, and the group disbanded in the mid-80s. But doesn't this guy just sound like a laugh riot? And speaking of riots, yes, Daryl was at the helm during the Rodney King riots. Although immediately after the jurors acquitted the cops who beat Rodney King, which caused huge riots to break out, Daryl decided to take the night off and attend a fancy fundraising gala a fundraiser that was fighting a ballot initiative to limit the power and the term of the police chief. After that, he posed for the cover of Out of Touch magazine. JK, JK. But Daryl Gates had a few other noted clunker responses during his police chief tenure. On one occasion where he testified before a Senate Judiciary Committee, he claimed that infrequent or casual drug users, quote, ought to be taken out and shot. Because we're in a war, and even casual drug use is, quote, treason. And here's another hot take. This is freaking gross. In 1982, Gates said that, quote, blacks might be more likely to die from chokeholds because their arteries do not open as fast as they do in, quote, normal people. Yes, these words came out of Daryl Gates's mouth. And after saying this publicly, he was still chief of the LAPD for another 10 years. And this man is the visionary behind the D.A.R.E. program. Alrighty, so in the early 80s, Gates teams up with the L.A. District Superintendent Harry Handler and the local Rotary Club to fund his pilot program. In 1986, the National Institute of Justice in California publishes an independent study showing that the program had a positive effect preventing kids from using drugs and alcohol. Although this study was immediately criticized for its inaccuracy by various factions within the scientific community. Despite the criticism, the D.A.R.E. program was awarded a $140,000 grant from the DOJ to be implemented at the national level. Members of the 1986 Congress also passed the, quote, Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act of 1986 which set aside 10% of state grants for police-staffed in-school drug education programs. And they recommend D.A.R.E. by name. And this is a lot of funding to throw behind a program that only has one study showing a positive effect. But it should be fine, you know, right? Like, I mean, schools have such big budgets to work with. Why not throw a few mil at this daring classroom experiment? So by the late 1980s, D.A.R.E. is in 75% of American schools. Ronald Reagan proclaimed September 15th as National D.A.R.E. Day. 
The Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act initially allocates about $10 million for an annual budget, but by its height in the mid-90s, that number rises to at least $200 million annually in federal funding. But here's where the money gets a little murky. DARE operates like many regional franchises. They get the federal funding and then they also raise more money through additional fundraising like boosters, pizza parties, et al. So oftentimes their regional budgets were matched or exceeded through private donations. And it's really hard to track the exact totals on the national level because, you know, some DARE programs were bougier, raising more coin than others. But credible estimates claim a total range as high as $700 million to operate the D.A.R.E. program. And that's in 1990s money. That's a lot of lettuce to lecture kids about avoiding the devil's lettuce. So now let's get with the program. How exactly does D.A.R.E. work? Spoiler alert, it doesn't. But here's how they operated. A uniformed cop would come in and teach about the hazards of drugs for 8 to 10 weeks or sometimes even longer. Yeah, teachers would block off valuable classroom time for the officer to come in and lecture to kids as young as kindergartners all the way through high school age students. The officer would tout the dangers of illegal drugs as well as cigarettes, alcohol, graffiti, and <gasps> tattoos. Meanwhile, your teacher was in the corner trying to discreetly hike up her stocking to cover up her dainty little ankle tattoo of a lovely indigo blue morning glory flower. It was ridiculous. The cop would equate a drag off a doobie to be as equally dangerous as booting black tar heroin. I remember being in elementary school and feeling very confused by the D.A.R.E. lectures. I was getting the drugs all mixed up, how they were injected, and their effects. Okay, okay, so if you snort marijuana, you get tons of energy, but then pass out and crash your bike? Oh, no! It all sounded terrifying, and I was paranoid, on guard, all the time, expecting some random stranger to pop out and offer me drugs. But I would be ready for them with one of my well-rehearsed slogans that I learned from the D.A.R.E. program. Like this one. Hey, man, drugs aren't cool. They make you act a fool. Or this one. I'm as clean as soap, cause there's no hope with dope. Or, I ain't no punk, I'll never drive drunk. This is when I was still super confused about what drinking and driving meant. I thought that consuming any kind of beverage while driving was illegal, like bottled water, coffee, and especially that dangerous looking Crystal Pepsi. And don't even get me started on cigarettes. Seeing people smoking was terrifying to me. In fact, in my mind, cigarettes were so evil and dangerous that when I was fighting with someone, usually my little brother, the harshest insult I could think of was to call him a cigarette. Yeah, the 90s were some confusing times. But what wasn't confusing was how dope that D.A.R.E. merch was. The t-shirts were amazing! Yes, that black shirt with the scary red letters that spelled out D.A.R.E. was the famous one, but my personal favorite was the white t-shirt with the neon pink letters and the colorful fireworks in the background. And then all your friends would sign the shirt with their name, pledging that they would never do drugs or alcohol. And then later they become your best drinking buddies. There really was so much iconic D.A.R.E. swag. That fanny pack, the pin buttons, and the hologram rulers were all super sweet. 
But my favorite were the number two pencils that spelt out too cool to do drugs. But then you would keep sharpening it until it read cool to do drugs. And then finally that stubby little pencil that said do drugs. There was also that mascot, a lion named Darren. He liked to dance and do clean raps and, you know, really relate to the youths. Here's an example of one of Darren the Lion's sweet licks. Don't want to fall into the trap. Don't want to be somebody's sap. I'm better than that. I'll go to the mat to prove I can be drug free. Yeah, yeah. Check your attitude at the door. I don't want to score. I only want to win this drug war. Dare. Yeah, elementary school Angela was sold. I thought Darren the Lion made some really good points. But there were other emerging voices who were much older and wiser than me at the time, arguing that the D.A.R.E. program was pointless, citing studies showing that D.A.R.E. may have zero effect or made things worse. You see, in addition to lecturing children about the dangers of drugs and alcohol, D.A.R.E. officers were known to bring in drugs and paraphernalia to the schools to show students what to look out for. Little pouches of marijuana were passed around for children to smell, and you would be exposed to bongs, crack pipes, and syringes at D.A.R.E. show-and-tells. There were even instances of D.A.R.E. officers driving to schools in fancy sports cars that had been repossessed from drug dealers. Gee, all I have to do is sell drugs and avoid getting caught, and I can have a car like that? Golly, that sounds great. See you later, Darren the Lion. I'm trading you in for a black jaguar. Yeah, I can see how this would all backfire, can't you? It was essentially an early education exposing kids to what drugs are, their various effects, what they look like, and where you can get them. And then as a kid, once you poke one hole in their narrative, you might start to question everything else the D.A.R.E. officer was exaggerating or flat out lying about. Because they were definitely lying about the effectiveness of the program. In 1992, Indiana University commissioned a study showing that students who completed the D.A.R.E. program had higher rates of hallucinogenic drug use than students who were not exposed. But on the other hand, it also made the trippy visual effects of that neon holographic D.A.R.E. merch more enjoyable. In 1994, RTI international scientists found that D.A.R.E. had little to no impact on students' drug use. D.A.R.E. spent over $40,000 trying to dispel this study, accusing RTI international of being pro-drug. Nah, D.A.R.E., I'm pretty sure that was your sharpened pencils that said cool to do drugs. In 1995, the California Department of Education ran a widespread survey of students who had completed the D.A.R.E. program. Over 70% self-reported that the program had a neutral or negative effect. In 1998, the National Institute of Justice reported that, according to their research, graduates of the D.A.R.E. program were more likely to drink alcohol, smoke tobacco, and use illegal drugs than the students who were never enrolled in the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah, and this is only a handful of studies over the past three decades. There's way more information that's come out showing that this program was a complete failure, waste of time, resources, and taxpayer money. Sorry, Darren the Lion. 
What's worse is so much of this information was known right away, but these studies were being suppressed by an active smear campaign. Allowing this first iteration of the D.A.R.E. program to run from the mid-80s all the way to 2001, before it started to lose funding. So I'm sure you have a couple questions. You're probably asking yourself, number one, does my old D.A.R.E. t-shirt still fit me? Answer is yes, only now it's a cute crop top. And number two, how on earth was this ineffective program allowed to go on for so long? Answer, because perhaps the D.A.R.E. program was actually a not-so-secret covert mission in America's war on drugs. And this is kind of speculation, but there is evidence that your boy Daryl Gates, the OG visionary behind the D.A.R.E. program, was looking for ways to infiltrate schools with police before launching D.A.R.E. He was seeing more and more drug busts coming from younger people and wanted to put a stop to gang affiliations. He had a few failed missions, including sting operations where students would buy drugs from undercover cops posing as fellow students. Then D.A.R.E. comes along. And some people think it's kind of weird that they're focusing on kids that seem to be way younger than the target risk group for drugs and alcohol. So there's some evidence that this program was actually about using young, naive children as informants to rat on their family members. It's like they were training kids, showing them what to look for in their homes, and then reward them with prizes and, quote, dare diplomas for their heroism. There were often dare boxes left in classrooms where students could leave, quote, anonymous notes that were not actually anonymous, and in fact lead to drug busts. And this scenario is not a hypothetical one. I have some receipts. In 1993, the Washington Post reported that a mother and father in Carolyn County, Maryland, were jailed for 30 days after their daughter informed a police dare instructor that their parents had marijuana plants at home. Later on in Douglasville, Georgia, a nine-year-old called 911 after he found a small amount of speed hidden in his parents' bedroom. He later reported to the Dallas Morning News that, quote, at school, they told us if we ever see drugs, call 911 because people who use drugs need help. I thought the police would come get the drugs and tell my dad that they were wrong. They never said they would arrest him. The nine-year-old later goes on to claim that the arrest wrecked his parents' lives. They both lost their jobs, a bank threatened to foreclose on their home, and his father was kept in jail for three months. The D.A.R.E. program never disclosed any records to the public of how many arrests were made by child informants, but just go on a few Reddit threads and you will see tons of anecdotal examples. I personally know one of my fellow elementary school classmates. His parents were arrested for growing marijuana after his little sister informed on them. When you hear stories like this, it seems pretty obvious that this is doing way more harm to the child instead of protecting and serving the community. Oh, and if you want to go even deeper and darker, do a quick Google search of just the term dare officer. And you will see over a dozen headlines of former D.A.R.E. officers themselves being arrested for illegal activity, including selling drugs and sexually abusing minors. I know, dude, it's super messed up. I feel like I need to start smoking cigarettes just to get through the rest of this episode. But lucky for us, D.A.R.E. has had a makeover and launched a 2.0 version of themselves called, quote, 
keeping it real. Yeah, something really cool and relatable for today's youths. The program now is less focused on specific drugs and more focused around techniques to avoid peer pressure. That actually sounds pretty good. You know, maybe not $700 million worth of taxpayer money worthy, but at least worthy of a two-topping pizza party fundraiser. But I'm not dishing out any donations if I see canned olives on the pizza. Sorry, not sorry. I'm just keeping it real. Yep, that was the truth about D.A.R.E. And I want to hear your D.A.R.E. stories. The good, the bad, the funny. Give me all the goods. You can email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and don't go informing on anyone to your D.A.R.E. officer. Stay tuned until after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Suspect Season 3, Five Shots in the Dark. Here's a synopsis. This third season of Suspect follows Leon Benson, who spent 24 years in an Indiana state prison for the 1998 murder of a young man named Casey Schoen. His conviction hinged on the testimony of two eyewitnesses. But what if their memories turned out to be wrong? And what if the people who knew what really happened had never been allowed to speak? This is the story of two victims, one murdered and one sentenced to life. This sounds like a great setup. I'm really excited about it because I loved season one. And in fact, you can hear my full review of Suspect Season 1, Murder at a Halloween Party, back in episode number eight. Season two of Suspect was also pretty good, but definitely didn't have the same impact as season one. I'm rooting for this season, though, and I suspect it will deliver. At the number two spot, we have Believable, the Coco Berthaman story. Here's a rundown. Coco Berthaman became internet famous by sharing her story of surviving sex trafficking as a young child growing up in Germany. She was sheltered and supported by families in Utah, where her faith and fame intertwined. But in 2022, Coco was arrested for raising money for a fake cancer diagnosis, and people began to doubt everything she had ever said. Is her life story truly one big elaborate lie? Yeah, I'm excited about this one, and I definitely need a redeemable show after Scamanda turned out to be a failure. But I'm ready to believe again in Believable, the Coco Berthaman story. And at the number one spot, we once again have The Girlfriends. 
Here's a synopsis from the show. It's 1995, and Carol Fisher is a high-flying divorcee looking for love in Las Vegas. It's slim pickings in the medical community she works in, but then Bob comes to town. Bob Bierenbaum is a plastic surgeon who flies planes and speaks several languages. Her mother loves that he's Jewish, but there's something off about him. He's perfect on paper, but he's quick to anger and never talks about his ex-wife who, it turns out, is missing and presumed dead. In this riveting nine-part series, Carol Fisher uncovers the truth of Gail Katz's death, the systems that failed her, and all the girlfriends that brought her to justice. Yep, the girlfriends still got it. I love that we get to hear about Gail. I think they did such a great job with episode three and four. She sounded really cool and not at all what I was expecting. This show continues to be more and more riveting. I can't wait to hear more from the girlfriends. Now for my miss of the week. We have Dragonfly, colon, Brett Cantor murder mystery. Here's a synopsis from the show page. The tragic death of Brett Cantor sent shockwaves through the entertainment industry. At just 25, Cantor had built an impressive career as an A&R executive at Chrysalis Music Group and was instrumental in helping discover bands like Rage Against the Machine. Brett was at the top of his game dating actress Rose McGowan and signing on as a partner in a popular Hollywood nightclub called Dragonfly. However, on July 30th, 1993, his life in the fast lane took a tragic turn, and the music executive was murdered in his West Hollywood apartment. Today, nearly 30 years later, the case remains unsolved. I am so mad at this show. The premise to this is perfectly in my wheelhouse, but this show is practically unlistenable. I mean, seriously, listening to this is like tasting garbage through your ears. It sounds like a weird AI voice narrating. The writing is kind of bad, like not even good bad. It's like almost like someone from the D.A.R.E. program wrote it to try to sound cool. And this show is just a huge overall disappointment. I want it to be destroyed and reimagined in a better form. But for now, Dragonfly, Brett Cantor, Murder Mystery, you're going down my podcast queue trapdoor. Find out next week if the girlfriends will continue to dominate the number one spot as the series continues or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trapdoor. I will meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to listen to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.